0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 12 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Rochelle Udell about her very creative professional life. The
1: strength of creative people is to be the outside observer of ordinary things. That's the strength of a creative person. So you've got to stay outside a little
0: bit. Here's Debbie Milman. Rochelle Udell has made her mark in several industries, publishing, beauty, and fashion. Here are just a few highlights. She was editor-in-chief of Self Magazine. She was art director for Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and Esquire. She was creative director of Revlon and Chico's. She founded Epicurious.com and was the president of Condé Net, the online portal for Condé Nest. More recently, she's turned her attention to making art. She's here today to talk about her spectacular, one of a kind career, her recent projects, and her recent foray into painting. Rochelle Udell, welcome to Design Matters. Pleasure to be here. Rochelle, you're a native New Yorker. You were born in the Bronx and then moved to Brooklyn. Um, where your first job was working for your father, who was a baker. And I understand this is where you first learned that if you got the inventory wrong, you literally had to eat the profits. Well, you know, it's perishable. (laughs) (laughs) So when did you start working for him? And what did you learn
1: most from your dad? We all worked in the bakery. And as a little kid, my job was to make the boxes. You prepared all the boxes for the cake halfway so that they could slip the cake in and then people could be on their way. So I started by doing that. And then later on, I did cash at the end of the day and dressed the windows and did all kinds of things. Tuesday was cookie day for my cookie day. And I had a dip and drip. Uh, What does that mean? Dip the cookies when half of it is in chocolate and drizzle when you have drizzle on top of certain cookies. I ate a lot of the profits, and I was very guilty as a child because I would stand at the end of the slicer and eat the ends of the breads. People called them the heels, and people were just furious when they got home and found that their heels were missing. (laughs) (laughs) I can understand that. Those are my favorite part. My father would say, you're eating the profits.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When you were in elementary school, I understand that one of your teachers was a woman named Mrs. Chast who was Roz Chast, the cartoonist who's also been on this show. It was her mom. Yes,
1: I've never met Roz Chast, but I've seen pictures of her, and she does look like her, her mother did. Mrs. Chast was part of the year for us, and but she was so important in my sort of early imprinting because she she would give us gold stars if we had correct answers and every kid had a line with their name on it and you got a gold star for a good answer. But Mrs. Chast did something that was brilliant. If we asked a good question, she gave us two gold stars. And that was actually really part of my imprinting as a child because
0: I had more questions than I had answers. That is incredible. That's a wonderful story. So it must have given you this sense that it was okay to be curious. And it was okay not to know. And it was okay
1: to learn. Because when I grew up, kids had answers, you know, and you were supposed to raise your hand and have the answer. And I was sitting there, you know, in my my house, uh, my mother never read or wrote any language. She was a total primitive. She, if she were alive today, she'd be 116 years old. So she came into this country without uh, the language skills that are part of growing up in this country. And so I as a as a result of having a parent that was like that. She was street smart. She was really street smart and she really understood people. But I would do pictograms for her. I would do pictures of cakes and then write the numbers of the bakery so she could call cuz she could read numbers but she couldn't read words. And so out of necessity I began to draw a lot as a little kid to actually help my mother and and I grew up loving just absolutely loving those Chinese restaurants where they showed you pictures of what you got on the plate. In fact, in (laughs) restaurants
0: today, I would love to walk around and see what everyone's eating before I order. Oh, I always ask, what is everybody going to get before I make my final decision? Now, you got your bachelor's degree from Brooklyn College and then went on to get a master's degree from Pratt Institute. When did you first realize that you wanted to be a designer? Um, I was a New York City school
1: teacher at Sheepshead Bay High School in Brooklyn. And my first husband was a designer for Lou Dorfsman at CBS. And I would help him on the weekends. Um, I could remember the smell of rubber cement, you know, when I would help. And I would help with the photostat machine. And I would cut things up. And I realized he was having so much fun. And I was having fun, too. So I enrolled in Milton Glaser's night school class. Uh, design and personality. And it was hard to get into the class because I didn't have a portfolio. But he let me stay in the class. And uh, I guess I was enthusiastic. And sort of a few weeks into the class, he said to me he was working on a project that I might like to work on. And that was New York Magazine. And so I was hired at New York Magazine when I was born out of the
0: Tribune. And I understand that a presentation for a school packaging assignment from Milton was what led you to the job. And I believe that the project featured a loaf of bread complete with braided handle kneaded by hand in your father's bakery.
1: Yeah. Uh, we had to do a package for bread, and I thought bread in itself was a great package. So I just baked a handle on top of an existing bread mm-hmm. and carried it in like a pocketbook.
0: And he was smitten. He was smitten. <laughs> and so he got you a job... Uh, that led to your job as an assistant art director at New York Magazine. Yeah. What was it like to work with Milton Glaser and Clay Felker, the co-founders of New York Magazine? My God,
1: lucky girl! Am I a lucky girl? You know, it was Milton and Clay, and it was Tom Wolfe, and it was Gloria Steinem, and it was uh, Walter Bernard. Had some of the greatest photographers there. I, I had a. I got an education.
0: One of your last projects at New York Magazine was in August of 1971 when you created the first issue of Ms. Magazine, which was actually an insert in New York Magazine's year-end issue. And I read that some of the other potential titles of the magazine were Every Woman, Sisters, Lilith, Sojourner, Female, A Woman's Place, The First Sex... The majority, and my favorite and apparently one of Gloria's, was bimbo, sort of like <laughs> re, reappropriating the word even back then. But I, I think that people also thought that the name Sisters would be a magazine about nuns. Mm.
1: <laughs> I actually have the logo designed somewhere in the attic for Sisters. Oh, really? Really? And yeah. so you d- did you design the logo for Miss? Uh, no, we were a team. You know, Milton had an extraordinary uh, group of people working for him. But it was important because then you had this designation that would go through culture. And when you think of you want to brand something, you actually are looking for something that's going to impact culture. And that's why
0: Ms. was chosen. So powerful. I understand that Clay Felker offered Gloria Steinem, the editor of Ms., the opportunity to choose the 40 or so pages he wanted from it. And then he was going to subsidize the printing of the other pages and put it out as a sample. And Milton Glazer said that the staff at that time all felt that you were on the brink of a moment in time. Did you feel that way, too?
1: I I did. I Very powerfully. And I, I actually think we're revisiting it again now. In what way? um, Well, just what's happened as a result of this election. You know, it's been a catalyst for people to stand up and voice what needs to be heard.
0: In the oral history of the magazine, Cy Newhouse said that you and he were the two donkeys closing the magazine, and Gloria gave you both a silver ring afterward. So I wanted to know, what does two donkeys closing the magazine mean? Uh, I guess
1: worker bees.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I,
1: I love to work. I'm very interested when two people, or more people, come together and they do something
0: bigger than they could ever do by themselves. At that moment in time, what did you imagine Ms. was going to turn into? Um, It's hard to turn
1: back the clock and actually think about what I was feeling at that moment. But I just felt a great sense of belonging, a really solid sense that we could make a difference in the world uh, for the well-being of women, for their opportunities, for their equality. You know, and as the years have gone by, I've realized the impact that women have brought to business. One of the things when I got to Condé Nast that I worked on was actually opening up the automotive marketplace as an advertising potential for the Condé Nast magazines because women were buying cars. They weren't just picking the color and they weren't looking for the mirror. So it was really important to have people understand how they actually made the decisions and decisions based on safety and, and, and important things in
0: terms of family. You left New York Magazine and took a job as the director of design of Vogue, where you stayed for seven years. You got there essentially at the time Grace Mirabella had just taken over as editor of the magazine. And at that point, there must have been a lot of pressure to remake the magazine and see what was going to come of this new editor. What was it like working for Vogue at that time? It was exciting because
1: I grew up with Vogue. I loved fashion. You know, I grew up with a sister who wanted to be a page in the magazine.
0: Didn't, Didn't we all?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anybody that doesn't still. It was just really exciting. At that time, Vogue came out twice a month, and it was a large size format. It was at least 9 by 12, something like that. It was, it was quite big. And so it was not only downsizing, but it was coming out once a month. You know, the first thing that I did when I got to Vogue was I went into the archives and we were going through a recession. So I went to uh, look at Vogue during the 30s uh, to see how they handled pieces of copy and information, how things ha- were handled during the war, uh, what they covered. I mean, they they had incredible cultural coverage. So it was a fashion magazine in the sense of fashion being a big, all caps word, the fashion of how we live. And, you know, it it was funny because in the 30s, they did articles called Champagne Legs on a Beer Budget, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. So um, we began to get a little bit more practical about some of this. And one of the things that was very powerful for me during that period of time, because of Grace's relationship to Bill Cahan, who was a cancer surgeon, we started to incorporate health into the magazine, there were no really big health pieces there. And so Vogue became a, a big advocate for women's health. And then it led to things like self and, uh, and health stories and glamour and, and so forth.
0: In the early 90s, you said that a good magazine steps in where society steps <laughs> out provoking questions, and helping shape a reader's lifelong values, ideas, and goals. These are a few of the convictions and hopes which propelled me from early days of sewing props for the cover (laughs) of New York Magazine to later living inside the pages of Esquire, Harper's Bazaar, GQ, Vogue, House and Garden, and The New Yorker. Rochelle, do you think that the role of a magazine has changed since you said that?
1: I hope not. <laughs> you know, I look at I look at some of the magazines that are so powerful today. I I look at the New Yorker. I read the New Yorker. I read Vanity Fair. I read Vogue. I think that they've been responsible journalists, The Atlantic. There's good real
0: news out there.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's there still is journalism and I hope that that fire will stay alive.
0: You know, it's interesting in that you said that you felt like this particular moment in time felt similar to the way it felt when you were at Ms. in terms of the women's movement and about the need for our voices to be heard. And I feel the same way in many ways about journalism, that this is a moment in time where magazines have an obligation to report culture and to report it in ways that help impact people and their decisions and their lives and their values. Yeah, it's a recommitment. You know, uh, On November 8th through
1: the night and to the morning of the 9th, my daughter was on the phone with me, Julia, and there we were four o'clock in the morning crying to each other. And she said to me, mommy, you work so hard. You marched so much. I said, my shoes are ready. My sleeves are rolled up. We will do this again and again if we have to do it again um, to
0: protect people and, and to honor and respect people. I don't know that this is the right word, but I'm heartened to see the kind of response that designers are having in the marketplace, the covers that are coming out now globally on some of the great journalistic endeavors, whether it be The New Yorker, Time. I mean, there's some really powerful art and design being Mm -hmm. done, and it gives me hope. Either that or it just helps soothe me.
1: Well, no, I I think you're absolutely, you know, I'm seeing a tomb and it it brightens. We're so global, as much as some people don't want to be, but we are, and the language has become visual. So when you see design at work to be able to
0: reach across borders, how powerful is that? And no language. It's just all visual. It's visual. While you were at Vogue, uh, you were given permission from Alex Lieberman, the editorial director of all of Condé Nast, to do some small space ads, as they were called, for Calvin Klein. And at that point, he was just another up-and-coming designer. You created the iconic campaign that really put him on the map, the first of which was an ad featuring a very young Brooke Shields stating that nothing comes between me and my Calvins. Talk about how you created that campaign. Well...
1: Uh, The line actually came from Dune Arbus, who was working with Dick Avedon. But the story behind it came from me. I was dating a guy who didn't wear underwear. (laughs) And that is how that commercial (laughs) happened. So I told the story. And Dick, who was brilliant, and Dune, who was just a wonderful writer, actually it all came together. And, And Brooke was 15 years old and I was eight months
0: pregnant. (laughs) <laughs> that is incredible. Did you anticipate that it was going to be as provocative and attention-grabbing and iconic as it was? No. No. I mean still to this day it's considered one of the best advertising lines of all time. I can't remark on that. Okay. <laughs> You've said that Calvin was his best strategist and he was able to capture the culture at that moment in time. In, in what way do you feel like he was his best strategist?
1: Well, if you look at his fragrances, his fragrances actually become a small microcosm for his zeitgeist. Obsession during the 80s. Obsession. You get a sense of family. You get a sense of uh, gender neutral with the fragrance one. So he was able to capture what was happening culturally
0: and put it in a bottle. You ultimately started his first in-house agency in 1981. Why was he interested in an in-house agency?
1: I was his freelance art director, and we would go from agency to agency. And it was very hard to explain the fashion and what he was standing for. And it, it was difficult for many agencies to actually apply their formulaic way of looking at things. People tried. People worked very, very hard. But in truth, Calvin was really smart and understood exactly what he wanted. And so we looked at each other and we started the agency, the in-house agency. That was
0: really an anomaly at the time. CRK.
1: We were doing it anyway. So we formalized it. and, um, And there were a lot of great contributors to the
0: effort. You worked for him for two years and then consulted for another four yeah. until he was really off the ground. Um, and then you returned to magazines for a short time. You were the design director of GQ. And then you were lured back into advertising, sort of proper advertising, for Jerry Della Femina at what was then Della Famina Travisano and Partners. And you joined there as a senior vice president and creative director and worked on brands including Quantro, Lifestyle Condoms, and Perry Ellis. What did you do for Lifestyle Condoms?
1: You know, we're looking at the early 80s, difficult time, uh, HIV, AIDS. And we had a client that actually thought sex was, and you needed a condom for the back of the car. Um, So, we, we really realized that we had to educate the client. So, we did focus groups, both male, separate male and separate female focus groups and the client began to understand that pregnancy wasn't the issue, it was death was the issue. And so we did a campaign that to me was the most important campaign I think I've ever worked on in my life because if one life was saved or if somebody was helped as a result of that campaign, that to me was the power of advertising. So we did a campaign called I Enjoy Sex But I'm Not Ready to Die for It and we featured a woman. It was a woman's face in the ad because uh, this was a period of time when gay men were stigmatized and it was wrong. So, we had to begin to shift the perception of what this disease was about, and begin to support people in their effort uh, to find a cure, to find a way to live, to not be um, isolated and abandoned and I think that the the ad did begin to help It was very hard to get the ad into magazines. it was very hard to get the ad on air, but it was the why f- why? People didn't want to be associated with it. They didn't want to be associated with death. But Jerry De is brilliant, and it was the force of his personality and his perseverance. And he was the great champion of getting it on air
0: and getting it in print. And we owe him a lot. What was the biggest difference working as a designer in the world of publishing versus the world of advertising? Or was there a difference?
1: Most of the time, there was a big difference. There's a great gift in publishing for an exploration of ideas, and there's a separation of business and editorial in publishing. So the business units would go out and they sold a magazine, not based necessarily on an article, but what that – magazine stood for vogue it's the bre- it's the bible of fashion if you want to know anything about fashion you go to vogue so you have to be in vogue but vogue is that bible because it has the it is it has been given permission by the people who do it to create the most amazing stories about fashion and culture and the impact of that in advertising you're only dealing with one small part of that and in many cases you're dealing not always, but you're dealing with companies that need to actually deliver to its shareholders, stakeholders, because they're not always shareholders, it's stakeholders, profitability. And in, in a magazine, you have a range of customers
0: that support that magazine so that you have a better balance. One of the things that I try to do on this podcast is sort of see a life, the person who I'm interviewing's life, sort of from a high altitude place. And help create a a narrative over the course of the interview. And as I was doing my research on you, I realized that there were four different areas that you have been working in for your life. You've been working in publishing. You've been working in advertising. You've been working in branding. And you've been working in art. And it's not that they've been consecutive in many ways. They've been sort of interspersed with each other. And... I was amazed at each opportunity that you pursued, you started as a novice. It's not like you had this background in publishing and there you were at New York Mm -hmm. Magazine and then Ms. and then Vogue and all of the Condé Nast publications certainly culminating with your being the editor-in-chief of SELF. And then you became somebody that created these iconic campaigns that really personify the culture of the time and then did the same thing in branding. How did you approach each new opportunity not being scared to death that you couldn't equal the previous success that you'd had? I am scared to death.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I... um, I am that sort of insane Jewish mother who lives in fear, you know, poo-poo-poo, God forbid, something should happen. Um, So I, I I am a frightened person. But I think the strength of it comes from the ability to be a fool. And I mean that in the most powerful way because it's the ability to fail and to get up. I did a book years ago on Jim Henson. And uh, I was the creative packager of, of the book. And the thing that I learned about him was that he had this incredible resilience because when he got shut down, he would bounce back up and sometimes bounce up higher. So you want to bring fresh eyes. You, you want to bring your fear. You want to bring your world in. And I think the strength of creative people – is to be the outside observer of ordinary things. Mm. That That's the strength of a creative person. So you've got to stay outside a little bit, you know, and begin to bring that in. And it's okay not, to, as I go back to Mrs. Chast, it's okay not to have the answer. I, I say to people who have worked for me, if they get a brand brief and they can't come up with the answer to what the solution to what that advertising should be. There's something missing in the brief. Go ask the question. Go ask the question. If you're not getting it, you're not getting
0: what you need to get it. Many years ago, you stated that good advertising is the product and the expression of experience, the keen pursuit of both truth and dreams. As such, it continues to fascinate, repel, challenge, enthrall, and every once in a while, even infuriate me. Does it still?
1: Yes. In what way does it infuriate you? For example, you know, the brand Trump. Yes. Right? That infuriates me. And, uh, you know, I, I would love to understand how to get inside the minds of that base and really begin to speak to that. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm 100 percent wrong. But I really believe in the goodness and and a fair shake and a second chance.
0: In the mid-80s, you became the senior vice president brand development at The Limited, which owns Bath & Body Works and Victoria's Secret. How did you first get that job? Uh, That was
1: funny. Um, They were looking for someone to fill the job, and I had the opportunity to meet with Leslie Wexner. And he said to me, you've never worked in retail. How can you do this job? And I said to him, I have worked in retail. I've worked in a bakery. And so he questioned me about working in the bakery. And working in a store is working in a store. You know, your relationship to the customer. Identifying that. You know, we didn't have databases in the bakery in in the 50s. But I knew who those customers were. And if you walked in and I knew that you were half a rye seated on the thin slicer, I gave it to you before you hit the line and you smiled. Except for the heel. Except for the heel. (laughs) (laughs) But it's that sort of identifying the customer, knowing what they like, supporting what they need, and then engaging them with perhaps something they might like, like take home this piece of cake that might be delicious for dinner whatever, and sampling. So there was a lot going on in the bakery. I learned everything about retail in that bakery. It wasn't just about drizzling and dipping cookies. It was about understanding customers. It was about experimenting with new types of cake and tastes and how much could the marketplace bear. It was about cross-selling. I was a great cross-seller. Because you knew your customer and you knew what they liked. Isaac Mizrahi's mother used to buy cake for her card games in the bakery and I used to deliver those cakes to her.
0: What was Isaac like as a little boy? I
1: I don't remember Isaac except he did remember coming from the yeshiva. He would pass the bakery and he would stop in from time to time. But there was one great story about my mother in the bakery – We were one of the last bakeries in New York to make what was known as a Charlotte Russe. I don't know if you know what that is. It's a cardboard container that has a piece of sponge cake at the bottom filled with whipped cream and a cherry on top. And my mother, as I mentioned to you earlier, was uh, a primitive, complete and wonderful primitive. And uh, so Channel 7 came and interviewed her at the bakery saying, you know, who buys these Charlotte Russe's? And she said, she was talking to the camera like she was whispering in someone's ear, and she said, You know, the men come off the train and they come in for a little Charlotte russe, a quickie before they go home. <laughs> it was very sweet. It must have gone viral. It the time. was
0: really sweet. <laughs> While you were at the Limited, you launched the Victoria's Secret Show online. Pretty revolutionary thing to do at that time. What made you decide to do it? I, I,
1: it wasn't my idea. No, no, it wasn't my idea, but I was part of the team that did do that. I'm not technical, but I am interested in getting information. So I was an early adopter of AOL.com in the, in the good old days, and um, I saw the strength of it, and so I went to sign Newhouse to start CondiNet. And the thing that we owned at the time were recipes in the Gourmet and Bon Appetit database. And so we were able to use those to begin to begin with. And for me, it was about the ability to communicate with other people and to sort information early days. I'm going back 23 years to start that. So I did have that experience. And, I, and so that was part of uh, why I was at The Limited and worked with a guy by the name of Dan Finkelman, who was actually the head of that group at that time. The gift for me at The Limited was meeting Boston Consulting. Um, They were brought in to really understand the lingerie business. It was called the underwear business when they started, and it became the lingerie business. And there were a lot of lessons to be learned uh, about how to manage a brand, how to learn the strengths, the weaknesses of the particular brand and the climate that it lives in. And so I was given a graduate degree when I was at The Limited, thanks to Leslie Wexner. But the online component was a very important component to be identified for the future of retailing. And that was just amazing. And, and you know, we didn't have the technical capacity to actually hold the whole show. And there were many breakdowns during the course of the show. And the, but the lesson in it was that so many people were interested in seeing it. And I had the opportunity to go to MIT, to the Media Lab up there. We were sponsors of the Media Lab. It, w- it was amazing. That was through Cundinast. Just an amazing experience to be educated.
0: On August 18, 1995, you launched Epicurious.com. At the time, the internet, you you mentioned how um, the underwear business became the lingerie business. Well, at the time, the internet was called the information superhighway. (laughs) It only had 23,000 websites, and your site was the first ever recipe website. And I understand that the idea for Epicurious came From a Thanksgiving dinner you were cooking where you were making two turkeys. (laughs) Can you share that story?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Um, AOL had something called Talk Turkey Hotline. (laughs) And I had a huge crowd coming for dinner then. And I didn't have enough capacity in the oven for all the dishes and two turkeys. So one of those turkeys had to go outside, but it was 26 degrees out. So I went on Talk Turkey Hotline at 6 a.m. in the morning, and I said – I just posted. I said, listen, here's the situation. It's 26 degrees out. Can I get this turkey done? And the answers came back, yes you can, make sure you blah 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 whatever it Six was. 6 in the morning Six people in the morning, were also on online, Talk turkey. turkey hotline <laughs> because that's you you know you have a big bird you got to get it in the oven. <laughs> And I got it in the oven and I got it in the center of the barbecue. Uh, make sure you had enough gas, they said to me, because it's going to take a long time. And I have to tell you, that was the better turkey. So I actually had two Thanksgiving dinners going at once. I had physical people reality dinner happening. And I had a virtual dinner happening because everybody wanted to know how did it come out? What was happening? What did you serve with it? Did everyone enjoy it? So we had a lot of feedback with the Talk Turkey hotline.
0: I understand that Condé Nast didn't know whether the idea of Epicurious was going to work, so they chose not to use the names of their other magazines, Gourmet or Bon Appetit. Talk about the name Epicurus, because that you did come up with. Yes, yes,
1: yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, um, curious. Thank you. Thank you, Mrs. Chast. Mm. Thank you, Mrs. Chast. Always curious. Ask the question. Epicurean, met curious, curious about food. You know, it
0: was, uh, it, it just sort of came together. Is it true that your servers were housed in a closet in Jersey City on the same floor as a dentist who would often lose power because the tools were blowing the circuits?
1: Well, there were any number of stories and there were any number of situations that did occur. There was one moment when we lost, uh, you know, we were connected with radio waves and so forth. And the cleaning help moved a potted plant in front of one of the, And so we couldn't figure out why we didn't have connection. But those were very frustrating early days because technically we were not. Saving, But
0: we, we learned. We learned. You were the first, and in many ways, the source that inspired how food has become part of the cultural vernacular. And I find it interesting as well how it links your family. In Belarus, your mother's father was a baker. Your father's father was a miller. The baker's daughter married the miller's son. And when your father came to this country, he became a baker. You founded Epicurus and your daughter, Julia Tertian, is a chef and a writer. Do you find this as incredible
1: as I do? I find it just wonderful and heartwarming. I think that you could learn everything from food. You can learn geography, you can learn language, you can learn math. You can learn all kinds of creative things. You can learn gardening, you can learn farming, you can learn biology, you can learn digestion, you can learn health, you can learn everything from food. I think it's an entire curriculum.
0: Speaking of family, <laughs> I read that Julia's father, your husband, Doug Tertian, proposed to you over the phone. Is that true? That's true. He proposed to you over the phone. You yes. hadn't even dated. We he had... just was in love with you from afar. You left Condé Nast. He was afraid he was never going to see you again. Is yes. this all true? Yes. So tell us a little bit more detail.
1: Well, he we worked together,
0: and um, I guess he missed me.
1: At those days, there was a live person who answered the phone on your behalf. It was an answering service. Uh, We'll be married next week, 37 years. Wow. So, um, and he decided that, you know, he wanted to spend the rest of his life with me. So he called up and he said, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you marry me? And I said... I, I called him back. I said, is this a oh, joke? it was a, a message? <laughs> yeah, it was a message from Gloria, who was answering the phone at the answering service. She said, Gloria, I said, Gloria any messages? She said, congratulations. I said, what for? She said, you know, uh, Doug wants to marry you. So I said, you got to be kidding. Give me the message. So she gave me the message, and um, I called him back. I said, is this a joke? And so we went out. I, I was terrible because I made my favorite food, which was liver and spinach, <laughs> which he hated, but he stayed. And so we got married 37 <laughs> years later. You were his former boss, is I that was his former boss. I love this. Yes. I so, married my assistant.
0: <laughs> <laughs> After the successful launch of Epicurious, you went on to become the editor-in-chief of Self Magazine. Up until this point, you had never been... An editor in chief. You were running brands, you were a design director. What was it like going from art director, design director, chief creative officer to editor in chief of an entire magazine?
1: Well, I have to give credit to the people I worked
0: for. You, you know? keep doing this. And, well it's true, it's
1: true. Because without them, this would never have happened. And Cy Newhouse and Bernie Laser at that time knew my affection for self. When I was at Vogue, I became a runner. And I've run marathons and um, I was very interested in health and well-being. I became very friendly with Phyllis Star wilson who was the founding editor and Val Weaver who was a wonderful editor herself. We were all very, very friendly. We all knew each other, and uh, they knew of my interests. So when the opportunity did come up for me, um, I was able to step right in because I I watched. I saw how it was done. I led a lot of meetings. It was not so strange for me to do that
0: job. And you did it magnificently. I mean, you really created an industry, an entire industry
1: Phyllis Star Wilson was the editor in chief of Glamour, not the editor in chief, managing editor or features editor. I forgot exactly what, but she she identified as we did when I got to Vogue the importance of health and well being, and that it was totally holistic. You know, it wasn't just your body, but it was your mind and your body. Working together and, and the impact of that and, and how exponential the benefits could
0: be if you actually became aware of what you could do. So after the successful time at you decide to pivot again. And you leave Condé Nast and you become the executive vice president and chief creative officer of Revlon, where you led the 75-member Revlon creative team on brand image, advertising, marketing, and overall imaging of Revlon, Almay, Vital Radiance, and four other of their portfolio brands. And at the time, I read that you reflected on the fact that so many cosmetic ads were interchangeable from your time and experience working in magazines and how if you took away the brand names, you couldn't tell one from another. So how did you go about changing that at Revlon? Well, Revlon actually had a deeper
1: problem before I got
0: there. And during my interview
1: with Ronald Perlman, he said to me, what do you think of Revlon? And I said, "Uh, it's got a great legacy, But if you call up beauty editors, because I came from the magazine world, if you call up beauty editors, I don't think that they could identify what those brands are about. And I said, that shouldn't be. When we pick up the phone and say Revlon, they should really clearly understand what it stands for. And he said, you're hired.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you were there for six years. Yes. And so what do you feel like your legacy was there in the work that you did? I think it was really
1: focusing the brand. There's a certain glamour to Revlon. And, you know, I'm a pretty serious person. But there's a part of me that really enjoys glamour. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I grew up during the 50s. And I loved the movies. And uh, and I, I think that there's, there's a lot of fun to attached to it. And there's a lot of, if you look at The background of self and the confidence building that comes from feeling good about how you feel and how you – and if you feel good, you can look good and if you look good, you you know, it's interchangeable. So I think that we were able to sort of recapture some of that – the goodness of glamour and not the frivolousness of glamour. You know, in the and Revlon used some very powerful women at the time. We we worked. You as, brought you were involved in that. And and Ronald Perlman was very much attracted to great Hollywood stars too, who they were as people, but also parts that they played.
0: After six years at Revlon, you became the creative director at Chicos, and you just recently left. How do you view this incredible? 50-plus 50 year, 50 year career of pioneering breakthrough work, what you've created and accomplished is really unprecedented, Rochelle. Oh, thank you.
1: I'm more comfortable under my rock than standing on top of it. And I love work. I just love work. I love being with people. I love the challenge of those issues that come up with regard to work. And more than anything, you know, I started life as a schoolteacher. And when you see your students or your children or your friends thrive, it's thrilling. When you see businesses be able to make a difference in the marketplace. You know, I I have a nephew who is a cancer surgeon and someone of his friends said to me, well, what do you do? You know, he saves lives. So I said, I'm responsible
0: for the gross national product of this country. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you've said this about your many illustrious titles. You said, as for the titles attached to my name, I consider them important only in as much as they help the outside world understand who I am and what I do. My fear is that, like the book, they often do more to confine rather than define one's creative possibilities. Do you still feel
1: that way? I do. I do. And... um You know, one of the reasons that I gravitated to Chico's was because of my age. and um, Why? In what way? What do you mean? Because women of a certain age become invisible in this culture. Yes, they do. And I was damned if I was going to let that happen. I just think that there's enough beauty and there's enough wisdom
0: to be shared. Rochelle, you're now creating a new body of work as an artist. And you're painting chairs. And... It's fascinating. It's an extraordinary effort. I'd love for you to read your statement about chairs from your website and then tell us why you have undertaken this specific topic. Would you mind doing that? I, 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 I appreciate
1: doing that. Thank you. I, because again, go back to I sit in the question and the question is, where do you sit in life?
0: Oh, okay. So
1: uh, here goes. A single empty chair in a welcoming place beckons, seduces you to get off your feet to sit, sink, pause, and look inward and outward and feel the wonder of not moving and taking a moment to just be. Conversely, close to and facing the wall, that same chair, that same solitude shames and isolates and refuses comfort. A chair on its side will telegraph upheaval, chaos, and even crime. In pairs, chairs spawn interaction and anticipation, side by side, face to face, back to back. Empty chairs in twos are for friends. For lovers, people alone who wait and wonder when or if the empty chair will ever be taken. Three chairs in a row are a classroom. Around a table, those same chairs are a meeting or a meal. Chairs are situational entities. Configure them with other chairs or objects, and they call people to connect, communicate, confront, talk to the chair, or pray. Chairs are central to how we conduct our lives. We choose a chair for its construction, aesthetics, and ergonomics. And all of this makes a chair, every chair, equal parts critically important and exceptionally
0: mundane. It's beautiful. That's beautiful. So you've chosen to paint chairs. You're deconstructing this contraption.
1: Mm-hmm. Why chairs? Why? Because I've never known where to sit in the room And I've wanted a place at the table and sometimes didn't get it. So it becomes a question. It becomes a metaphor. It becomes a symbol. And without necessarily being judged because of the person sitting in the chair. So chairs can constitute power. You know, who's sitting, who's standing. Uh, you look at kings and queens. Uh, chairs actually have become currency today. You look at Dow Jones has a furniture index. And you could go to the index and you could see uh, the collecting of furniture and how that's increased over time. Because some people can't afford the big stuff, but they can afford collecting something that they want to increase in value and has a certain amount of emotion attached to it. And I've looked at chairs uh, In literature, I've looked in chairs in painting and in music and so forth. And one of the things that's most powerful to me about a chair was brought to my attention by a poem uh, called Ode to the Chair by Pablo Neruda, who – and I've illustrated the poem um, in part of the work that I've done – but he, he speaks about entering the jungle, which is a symbol of warfare and chaos in the world. And he said at the end of the poem, when you see the chair, it's the first sign of peace. Oh, I love that. And it's just so powerful and so wonderful. And then there are guys, you know, like Thoreau. Thoreau in Walden literally said, I have three chairs in my house. One is for solitude, two are for friends, and three are for community. So a lot's been written about chairs. People sing about chairs. The empty chair is a powerful metaphor. I actually give a speech on chairs, uh, and I I did it up uh, to the drama department at Yale. And at the end, I put everyone on the spot, and I said— Anybody got any good chair stories? And there were a lot of hands that went up. And one guy stood up and he said, about three years ago, I sat in a chair and it broke. And then I went on a diet and I've lost 150 pounds. <laughs> wow. I said,
0: that's a good chair story. <laughs> so you've created a body of work now titled My Bio in Chairs. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the chairs is a chair from your public school. I think it was PS93. Is that correct? Yes. The first
1: chair was a public school 93 chair. The chair was very, very heavy. Couldn't move it. You couldn't push it over, but you could push it against the floor. And it's the first time my feet touched the floor. And I actually felt like I belonged because we didn't have any children's chairs, you know, during the cave period when I was growing up. Uh, and so I remember sitting on a couch with my feet dangling or I remember sitting on a floor. Uh, but this is the first time my feet actually touched the floor. And it was very powerful for me to actually feel like everything was in my size. Uh, and I didn't have to look up anymore. I could look across and see kids that were my, my age. Uh, The second most important chair in my life were two Wazili chairs that I bought. I bought these chairs because they were a symbol of modernity and I wanted to be perceived as a modern person. And my mother came to the house, my dear mother, uh, walked in the house, looked at these chrome and leather sling chairs, and she leaned over to me, grabbed me by the wrist, and she said, someday you'll have a little money, you'll get them covered. <laughs>
0: and so what I've done is I've literally created slipcovers for the Wazili chairs. <laughs> Wonderful. And they're fabulous. And they all can be seen on on your website. Any thoughts on exhibiting the work? Yes, there's actually a show coming up April
1: 20th at the First Dibs Gallery at 200 Lex. Wonderful. And I'm really excited about it. And it's the perfect venue because first dibs is amazing. You know, I mean I to me it's my art gallery, but I'm gonna have over eighty pieces of art in that show.
0: Wonderful. And oh I
1: can't really, wait. And it's focused wait. It's focused it. on the chairs, but there's other stuff too, folks. <laughs> Collages, right? You're yeah, doing a lot of collage work. It, yes, but I live in the question of what do you keep and what do you throw out. So I have I've been recently painting pictures of stacks of stuff. Yes. Stacks of stuff. I have stacks of everything. You know, I'm not a hoarder at all. I try to be neat and try to throw things out occasionally. Stacks of books, stacks of notebooks, things like that.
0: Michelle, I'd like to close the show by reading a statement you made about your work and your life. You've said... Fortunately, I've been privileged and lucky enough in my professional life to have encountered others who believe as I do, namely that the structure behind every good business organization should first encourage possibilities. For me personally, that means identifying with and making that vital connection with the human being who is the reader or consumer. Only then can one hope to successfully serve the creative spirit and develop a product powerful and imaginative enough to contain the future. Thank you, Rochelle, for creating some of the most powerful and imaginative magazines, brands, and stories of our time.
1: Good run. I had a good run. <laughs> and you're still running. I'm still running.
0: You're still running. To get a peek at Rochelle Udell's artwork, go to RochelleUdell.com. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.